You're listening to the Two Degrees Podcast, a podcast dedicated to having constructive and positive discussions around climate change and climate-related policy. Two Degrees is a project of the New York Youth Climate Leaders. The opinions and perspectives discussed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the New York Youth Climate Leaders. Welcome to another episode of Two Degrees, the podcast of the New York Youth Climate Leaders. I'm one of your hosts, Radesh Singh. And I'm Bridget Musa. This week, we are so excited and thrilled to have Bill McKibben, a co-founder of the international climate advocacy group 350.org, a journalist and professor at Middlebury College up in Vermont. We're really excited to have him on our podcast this week to talk about the international climate movement, the international divestment campaign, which 350 has been a major part, um, as well as his thoughts about how the climate movement has grown since he first got involved, as well as its current state status with the overall movement for racial justice in the United States and across the world. We're really excited to speak with him today, and we really, really hope you enjoy this interview. All right, to start off, we were just wondering, how did you get involved in climate and environmental activism in the first place? Why, it's such a long time ago. Um, when I was in my mid-20s and living in New York City. Uh, I was writing what was called the Talk of the Town column for the New Yorker magazine, but also did a big story for the magazine about where everything in my apartment came from. I followed all the, you know, I followed the the water system all up through upstate New York, all into Kingston and Dutchess County, all everywhere. And I, you know, went out with the barges that were taking the sewage out into the harbor. And Con Ed was getting its power from all over the world. So I was in Brazil and up in the Arctic and on and on and on. And what it did was allow me to understand in a way that I hadn't before, just how physical the world really was. And I, I think we don't often spend enough time thinking about that, you know. Um, and because I was thinking about how physical and really how vulnerable even a powerful place like New York City is, I think I was well prepared to be reading the early science around climate change in the 1980s. And as a result, I wrote what became the first book about climate change, a book called the end of nature that I wrote when I was 27 and it was published when I was 28 in 1989. And it became a big bestseller all over the world. I think it was in about 24 languages or something. And really ever since I've been working around these issues on climate change. Now, I didn't become an activist at first. I was a writer, still am a writer. Uh, and I thought that's really what I should be doing. But at a certain point, I began to understand that, you know, we'd already won the argument about climate change. We were just losing the fight because the fight wasn't about more data and reason. Another book probably wasn't going to move the needle enormously. The fight was about money and power, which is what fights are always about. So that was the point when I decided to become a little bit of an activist, too, and helped found 350.org, myself and seven college students. And it became the first iteration of a kind of global climate movement. Now, happily, we have plenty of others. The Sunrise Movement, Extinction Rebellion, Fridays for the Future, all of that that have come up over the last decade to really build 
really what may be the largest movement about anything in, in human history. So it's been very interesting to get to, to watch that all develop over time. That's so interesting. Thank you for sharing that. So since you first got involved with climate activism, how have you seen the movement grow and evolve? And additionally, what have been the major setbacks that the movement has experienced that you have seen since you've gotten involved? So it turns out that the major obstacle to progress is the political power of the fossil fuel industry. Um, more than anything else, that's what keeps us from changing. I mean, the other thing I think that keeps us from changing is inertia. It's just, you know, easier to keep doing what everybody's been doing. But we could overcome inertia if we could get past vested interest. And so that's why we've worked so hard to fight the fossil fuel industry on so many fronts, beginning with um, working hard on uh, uh, trying to block its expansion, its physical expansion. And the first of these big pipeline fights over the Keystone Pipeline that grew into battles about every coal port and pipeline and fracking well and things. And then also taking on the financing of the fossil fuel industry. That's really where this movement around divestment started. Um, my old and dear friend Naomi Klein and I were talking in 2012 about a new report that had just come out, a little obscure report from a British think tank that demonstrated that the world's oil companies and coal companies had in their reserves about five times as much carbon as any scientist thought we could safely burn. And as we read that, we thought back to our own college days in the anti-apartheid movement and thought that maybe this would be another example of a place where divestment would be a good tool. We didn't know how well it would work. And we can talk, if you want, about how that movement has, has grown and expanded over the last eight years, if you'd like. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, obviously, the climate crisis has been raging for many, many decades now, with unfortunately little to no major action taken by world leaders. And as you mentioned, you know, many climate advocates across the world, including yourself, have pushed for divestment from the fossil fuel industry uh, as a climate solution in the face of continued governmental inaction on this crisis. Uh, but could you describe a little bit more what divestment is and the rationale behind it? I sure could. Um, so that was began with that notion that these companies had way more carbon than we could burn. And if you think about that, that makes them kind of rogue companies, you know, not just normal parts of our system, but rogue companies. If they carry out their announced business plans, then all this drama is over and the planet just burns up, you know. So we decided to see what we could do. And I wrote an article for Rolling Stone about this in 2012 that went very viral. It was called Global Warming's Terrifying New Math, and it laid out these numbers. And from that uh, beginning, we we started organizing in the fall of 2012 what we called the Do the Math Tour. And first, it went all over the U.S., and it was pretty grueling. We did, I think we did 29 cities in 31 days or something like that, 
traveling at night after each show on a big bus. And these were big shows, you know, three or 4,000 people a night in attendance in big auditoriums that people were buying tickets to get in. And there were, wasn't just speeches, it was, you know, uh, uh, music and, and uh, it, it was pretty powerful. And by the time we were done in December of 2012, there were something like 400 divestment campaigns underway at college campuses. Um, so really we'd managed to jumpstart this and we did the same thing in Australia and New Zealand and then the same thing across Europe, um, sort of caravanning around to get people going on this fight. And then once it got going, everybody just took over on their own, man. And, and every place in the world, people doing what you guys have been doing in New York State, figuring out who had the power, who needed to be reached, how to go after them. Uh, sometimes they found willing allies who were ready to go to work. So in New York City, Scott Stringer, you know, willing to divest the city's pension funds. Sometimes they ran into big roadblocks like Tom DiNapoli in Albany, not willing to do much, needs to be pushed and pulled at every turn. But people have done a spectacular job. This has become the largest anti-corporate campaign in history, I think. We're at about $15 trillion worth of endowments and portfolios that have divested in part or in whole. Uh, in the course of this year, we've watched, in the last 12 months, we've watched the University of California system, biggest public university system on earth, divest something close to $100 billion in pension and endowment. Um, we've watched Oxford University, probably the most prestigious university on the planet, divest. We've watched the Pope and the Queen both come out in favor of divestment. I don't know who's, I mean, I don't know, you tell me, I guess we need Beyonce also. But I mean, it's been remarkably big, much, much bigger than we ever imagined, and more effective. Naomi and I thought, I think, that we were trying to, as we put it, take away the social license of the fossil fuel industry. And I think that that's definitely happened. This proved to be the best way to make people understand just how immoral their actions were. But it's reached the point where it's also doing enormous financial damage to it, making it much harder for them to raise capital. Some of you have seen Jim Cramer, America's favorite stock picker, goes on television every night to yell at you about which stocks to buy and not. And in January, long before the pandemic had hit home, he spent a couple of nights explaining to people why they should never buy oil stocks again. He said divestment had just gotten too big all over the world. Uh, nobody was, you know, just no one was going to make money anymore uh, trying to uh, hold stocks in this industry. So now we're expanding this divestment to also go after the banks and asset managers and insurance companies that lend the money uh, that keeps the fossil fuel industry going. And that work's been effective too this year, even if the pandemic has made it a little harder than it would otherwise have been. Right. So you touched upon this a little bit, but can you go into the specifics of why the fossil fuel stocks have become an increasingly dangerous divestment? Well, so if you had a bunch of money to invest, um, you know, 10 years ago, the worst thing you could have done with it was put it in fossil fuel. That sector has underperformed the rest of the market by a large margin. And I think there are two reasons for that. 
One is the work that you all are doing. Um, as people understand more and more that the fossil fuel industry is responsible for the climate crisis, they come under more and more and more regulatory pressure all the time. Um, and so that makes it harder and harder for them to make money. You know, in the U.S. right now, they've got a little bit of a get out of jail free card uh, because of Donald Trump, but that's not going to last forever. And the other thing that's happening at the same time is that the engineers are really doing their job. Over the last decade, the price of uh, solar panel or wind turbines dropped by about 90%. It's now the cheapest way to generate power around the world. That's a kind of pincers that has the fossil fuel industry in its grip now. So on the one hand, uh, it's powerful forces like you guys who are taking them on um, because what they're doing is immoral and unsustainable and wrong. And on the other hand, you've got people coming up with a better, cleaner, cheaper alternative to what they do, provide energy. So between those two things, they don't have much of a future. And they kind of know it. What they're trying to do now is just prolong their existence as long as they can. Instead of getting off fossil fuel in 10 years, which is what the scientists tell us we have to do, Exxon would be happy if we'd take 30 or 40 or 50, if they get to dig up a lot more of their reserves and burn them and make some more money along the way. And our job is to keep that from happening. Uh, but it's very clear where the momentum is. Just yesterday, uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which is the collection of the most important stocks on the planet, announced that it was taking Exxon off its list. It had been there for 92 years, but and until 2011, it was the biggest company on planet Earth. But you all have done a good job, and Exxon is struggling now, and that's good because the Exxons of the world are a mortal risk to the planet. Yeah, definitely. And you, you also mentioned, you know, the University of California system recently divesting its, you know, enormous uh, amount of capital away from the fossil fuel industry. Um, what are some of the other major pools of capital that have divested from the industry? And also, what were some of the first uh, pioneers in this movement? Absolutely. So I, the, I remember the very first divestment. It was tiny Unity College in rural Maine. And while we were doing that Do the Math tour, we got to Portland, Maine, and we were in a movie theater with a couple of thousand people. And the president of this little college uh, stood up and said, we're divesting our $8 million endowment right here and now. People just went crazy cheering. Um, that was a real boost. Um, a lot of the early adopters were things like that, colleges that had a real commitment to environmental progress, for instance, or churches and religious denominations that felt a real moral call to be doing this work. But now it's expanded to include all kinds of people, including people whose main desire is to make more money. So, you know, some mix of those motivations, say, prompted uh, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is the biggest pool of investment capital on planet Earth, to take action. And that was a particularly interesting one, because, of course, all that money in Norway 
came from um, um, from oil deposits in the North Sea. But they've taken that money, about a trillion dollars, and said, we're not going to be throwing new money in this same direction. We're going to be funding what comes next. I remember the day that the Rockefeller family announced that they were divesting from fossil fuel, that their charities were selling all their coal and gas and oil stocks. That was super significant because, of course, they're, you know, they're New Yorkers who are heir to the first original oil fortune, the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of John D. Rockefeller, who started Standard Oil, now Exxon. Um, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of colleges and universities divest now. Uh, you know, great public institutions like University of California, the University of Washington, uh, great Catholic institutions, University of Dayton, Georgetown, um, Ivy League schools, Brown, Cornell in upstate New York. Um, um, we've seen more than half the colleges and universities in the United Kingdom divest seen huge pension funds like New York City's. In the country of Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, they've divested every single public account in that country uh, um, um, from fossil fuel. So it's become um, massive in ways that we couldn't have predicted. Yeah, definitely. It's amazing to hear that. So after divestment from fossil fuel stocks, and what would you say are some of the next steps that, that the world needs to take in order to truly combat the climate crisis? Well, I think is, I mean, I continue to think it's really crucial to try and weaken the fossil fuel industry. And that's why we're working really hard around these questions of, um, of banks and insurance companies and asset managers, because they have such huge amounts of money. And it's beginning to work. Uh, last winter, after a lot of great campaigning, BlackRock, which is the biggest asset manager in the world, announced a big new policy on climate. And they've been only so-so about carrying it out, but it's there on paper and they can be pushed now much harder than before. So I think we're beginning to see progress even there. I mean, money really is the oxygen on which the fires of global warming burn. Now, if we can weaken the fossil fuel industry politically, then finally there'll be room to do all the important political work that needs doing. So for instance, the Green New Deal, um, um, which is you know, incredibly important, but can't happen as long as the Exxons of the world have a hammerlock on Washington. Um, and so all of this works in kind of some kind of synchronicity. Definitely, obviously, you know, as you mentioned, ExxonMobil was the largest company up until just, you know, a couple few years ago. Uh, their, their annual profits larger than many uh, annual uh, GDP output of many uh, nations, in fact. Um, so obviously, you know, the political and economic power of the fossil fuel industry continues to persist to this day. Uh, but also, I wanted to ask you kind of grounding um, the climate movement into the current movement uh, for Black Lives and this current, you know, societal reckoning that the United States and the world is having with racial justice and inequality. Um, you know, since the brutal killing of George Floyd, a black man at the hands of four Minneapolis police officers just a few months ago, 
um, you know, an, an enormous movement of millions of people, not only in our nation, but across the world, uh, has emerged for racial justice. And historically, the climate movement has always been tied with racial justice, as we know that in the United States, black and brown communities are disproportionately affected by the climate crisis. Well, internationally, uh, many of the people of the global south are literally on the front lines of the climate crisis. You have islands in the Pacific um, that only have five or 10 years before they're completely submerged underwater. Um, recently, floods have uh, decimated uh, the country of Bangladesh um, in South Asia. Uh, you have you know, worse and worse droughts each year in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, and it's even starker during the era of COVID where many of the resources formerly available are not available in places of the global south. Um, so how does um, you know, divestment and you know, the climate movement generally further the goal of climate justice to uplift not only community, um, frontline communities in the US but the global south uh, internationally? Yes, so Hrinesh, these are exactly the right questions. And one of the things that I think is most important here is to understand that you have to be talking about justice in deep ways. You know, when we started 350.org, the first decision was to make it entirely global um, and to try and give everybody around the world as much of a voice as it was possible to do, precisely for the reasons that you outlined. The iron law of climate change is the less you've done to cause it, the more likely you are to be hit hard and fast by it. So that's always been at the core, but I think it gets more and more obvious all the time. Um, look at the murder of George Floyd, um, one of those epochal events that really shakes up people's understanding of the world. Um, what is the thing that he kept saying uh, over and over and over again? Um, I can't breathe. Well, he couldn't breathe because there was a cop kneeling on his neck. And there's lots of communities that can't breathe because of that kind of police brutality that stifles people. But they're also often the same communities that can't breathe because there's a coal-fired power plant down the street. The asthma rate for African-Americans is something like three times the rate for young white Americans. And if you think it's bad here, look around the world. Uh, Delhi in India, um, we think that there are five million children in that city, and we think that two and a half million have irreversible lung damage just from breathing the air. Um, and now people can't breathe because it gets too damn hot. We set a new world mark this summer for the highest reliably recorded temperature, 130 degrees Fahrenheit in California. Um, what happened then? Well, within days we had the biggest wildfires in California history. And what do you know? People can't breathe because there's so much wildfire smoke. Today in Colorado, where the biggest fire in the state's history is burning, people, um, the state authorities told people that they should construct what they called safe rooms inside their houses where they could keep all the outside air out. Well, that's terrible for anyone. But what does it mean for someone who's homeless, um, um, for someone whose you know, house is so poorly insulated that that's not possible? Um, we are facing the first truly global challenge that we've ever faced. So we best come together to deal with it as globally as we can. 
definitely. And you know, you mentioned that the places that have contributed least to this, you know, global catastrophe are bearing the brunt of this crisis. You know, you mentioned uh, New Delhi um, in India. Um, and I actually have, you know, family that live in um, Delhi and, you know, they, they tell me all the time about, you know, how terrible the smog pollution uh, is in the capital city of India. I also have family in Nepal, I mean, uh, the Kathmandu Valley, who, you know, tell me, you know, a couple decades ago, uh, they were able to see the Himalayan mountains, beautifully pristine, some of the greatest wonders of the world. And now, um, today, because of, you know, the over-reliance on coal, um, and other fossil fuels, uh, they're not able to see the mountains anymore. Um, not, only, not only can they not see them, but those mountains are melting at an astonishing rate. Um, India and Bangladesh and Nepal and Tibet are among my favorite places in the world. And I've spent a lot of time there and I have a real sense of what it feels like to be there. And, and, and what's happening now is incredibly unfair. These are places that have contributed next to nothing to climate change, that are feeling an almost impossible burden at this point. Definitely. So, you know, given that, and, you know, historically, you know, the global South has been the prime, uh, you know, region of the world that has been subjugated to imperialism for hundreds of years, the extraction of wealth, treasure, brutalization, many cases, even, you know, mass murders and genocide. Um, that legacy of imperialism, you know, continues to this day um, in the form of, you know, climate change and all their, you know, gross economic inequalities. Uh, but how do, how do you see climate change and addressing the climate crisis as an opportunity for, you know, not only, you know, the U.S. and frontline communities here, but the global south broadly um, and these formal, former, you know, imperialized nations? Well, one of the things that's really good here is that about 80% of the people in the world live in countries that import rather than export fossil fuel. So what that means is that as we move to renewable energy, they won't be paying huge sums of money off to the Saudi Arabians or the Koch brothers or wherever it is that controls the supply of coal and gas and oil. Uh, we don't have fossil fuel everywhere on this planet. Most countries don't have much of any. But we do have sun and wind everywhere on this planet. And happily, it tends to be easiest to access in the tropics, in precisely those places that have been most exploited by the old economy. So one hopes that there'll be at least some erosion of some of the, well, of some of the patterns of power and privilege in our societies as we move off concentrated fossil fuel and towards diffuse renewable energy. Yeah, definitely. This is a little late, but I wanted to say my mom's partner has family that lives in California right now, and they're currently living with a friend, so they're safe, but they um, are not in their home because of the fires. So it it's, it's, I've, been hearing people, I've been hearing from people in California, Bridget, all week. Um, I mean, it's, you know, they're almost getting used to it because they have fires year after year, but it's so hard. And this year in particular with the pandemic on, I was talking to someone yesterday who has to wear two face masks now, one an N95 mask to block out the particulates uh, uh, from the fire and over it, the kind of mask we've all been wearing just to deal with the COVID crisis. I mean, things are getting a little out of control. 
when you have to choose, you know, which mask you're going to wear to deal with what crisis. For sure. That's crazy. So lastly, we just wanted to ask you, what advice do you have for the emerging generation of youth climate activists? Oh, I think everybody needs no advice from me. Everybody's doing it just right and, and pushing really hard. Um, I think the thing to always remember is on the, you know, that, that we have to, the, the challenge we have to meet is set by physics and by chemistry. It's a crazy challenge, unlike the ones we're used to dealing with. Most political issues that you'll deal with over your life, they're kind of negotiations between different groups of people. How high should the minimum wage be? Or, you know, how much should we cut taxes or, you know, whatever it is. And and you sort of go back and forth and change over time and reach where you can. And this isn't like that. Um, physics and chemistry don't negotiate and they don't compromise. They just do what they do. And it's our job to figure out how to respect that. Um, and our job to figure out how to respect that in a way that also respects basic questions around fairness and justice. So we've got a chance here to do something remarkable, but we have to do it, whatever we're going to do, fast. It's not completely fair that young people should have to bear the brunt of this work, you know. Um, you should be able to go to college and, you know, whatever it is and 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 just enjoy it, I guess. But no such luck for y'all because we got so little time to deal with this that we need you right where you are in the lead in this fight. And I just want to say how grateful I am um, for your hard work and for the pleasure of getting to work with everybody. Um, this kind of stuff is hard, but there's also some fun in it, as I think you've discovered just in being part of a team. Um, very few people ever get to say in their lives, I'm doing the most important thing that I could be doing in the world right now. And you guys do get to say that. There's nothing you could be doing that's more important than what you are. And, and I know that that's a burden sometimes, but it's also an honor. And it's an honor for me just to get to work shoulder to shoulder with you. Well, um, th thank you so much, you know, for coming on our podcast. But also, you know, this is the, the importance of intergenerational activism. Uh, it's two ways that, you know, we as youth were honored to work side by side with, you know, elder statesmen such as yourself, Naomi Klein, um, you know, Representative Alcantio Coxio-Cortez in the House of Representatives championing the Green New Deal, and, you know, a variety of other adult allies that have been, you know, in this fight for decades, you know, giving us their wisdom, um, you know, showing allyship and support. So, you know, we really appreciate the elders um, that have come at, uh, before us, and we continue to really be excited to work hand in hand with them to fight against, you know, the powers to be and fight for a more just and equitable world. You said it, brother. On we go. Well, again, thank you so much, Bill, for coming on. And we really All right. Take care, y'all. God bless. Producers are Anna Sarah Saletti, Natalie Penna, and Sophie Campbell. The music is by Francis Bach. Today our guest was Bill McKibben. Thank you so much for listening and check us out on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at NY2CL. 
and Twitter at NYYouthClimate. And check out our website, nytcl.org. <laughs>